I would just say two words, be kind. I would just say the solution to everything is be nice. No matter what happens to you, where you are, who's doing it, if you're nice, there's a million times better likelihood of things turning out okay for you. Welcome to Supernormalize, the podcast where we challenge the conventional, break boundaries, and normalize the seemingly supernatural. Join me, CJ, as we explore less uncharted realms of existence and unravel the mysteries of life experience. My treasured listeners, if you have a life story or healing modality or unique knowledge that you'd love to share, reach out to me at supernormalized, that's supernormalized with a Z, at proton.me. Let's together embrace acceptance of the supernatural and unusual as what it really is, completely normal. Today on Supernormalize, I welcome to the show Mike Oppenheim. And uh, Mike has been interested in entertainment since he was a child, but became serious in 2003 when he began his music career as a um, band member playing guitar with Punch Clock and Smirk. Now, in 2006, he started his weekly philosophy, philosophy essay, The Casual Causist. And in 2011, he earned an MFA in fiction from Mills College with his novel Dysfunction. He has since released the book Baby Doll, the book. Um, uh, too Good to Be True, and The Apology, and his fifth novel, Ardor, will be released on March 30, 2023. So that's already been released since this show. Now, Mike and I actually had a discussion on a service that, um, where he told me about an experience where uh, he had his child abducted and how he came to terms with that through plant medicines. And so I welcome to today... Um, Mike, to discuss that experience and more about his life. So please enjoy the show. Welcome to Supernormalized, Mike Oppenheim. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Mike. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on, uh, letting me come on. And I had to cancel one time, so I'm really happy to do this makeup session. Oh, it's totally uh, okay. Life yeah. gets busy. I completely understand. It happens to all of us all of the time. We've got so many things going on and uh, that's just natural. So we uh, met each other through a, a service that actually connects people for um, podcasting. And um, you mentioned that you had lots of uh, stories that you'd like to share. And um, one of those is quite out there when it comes to um, your uh, relationship with your ex-partner and, um, and how that all played out with your son and an abduction. That's a heavy story. Um, do you want to start there? Or maybe first of all, actually, let's talk about Mike. Who is Mike? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's funny. Um, Mike is a guy who's very comfortable talking about his personal life. Um, and for two reasons. One, I just don't care. And two, I think it's helpful for other people to just um, see a person's psychology for how they deal with things. Because when my ex-wife um, went to Thailand with my son and then didn't return, which is one way of describing it. Um, I have a lot of different ways of talking about it, depending on the audience. Um, mm. You know, I, I encountered 
uh, a shadow side of myself that I wasn't familiar with, which is like an angry, um, you know, vengeful person who was like very upset and wanted nothing more than justice. And uh, as time goes on, it's been six years now. I've really, uh, I never went there. First of all, I should make that clear. I did not take revenge or do anything um, mm. like bad, but, but it was more the thoughts and the disturbing patterns of thoughts. And that really set me on a, a different course in life that I'll never be able to like change. And it's a great trajectory, which is uh, one of compassion and one of trying to help other people while still having an ego and still having like career goals and things like that. But, you know, I'm uh, so Mike to answer your question is a uh, fellow human who's really just interested in connecting with other humans. And uh, yeah, I love this mystery of life. Excellent. Excellent. I think it's actually good to recognize that all of us do have, um, capacities to do um, extreme things and those extreme things may be um, and may be seen as harmful um, to others and things like that I think but the main part is the fact that a real conscious being knows those things are in us but also keeps them in check and um, can can step away from from that um, violence even the violence to the self violence to um to others or violence to our own minds and our own bodies so yeah, all power to you from recognizing that. Now, you did mention that um, as a part of that story um, that um, was the most woo-woo for you was um, the fact that you took ayahuasca. And um, that's a plant medicine that um, a lot of my listeners know about it already. And if they don't, there's so much stuff on the internet now that can teach them <laughs> about it. But what was happening for you at that time? I and mean, why were you led to ayahuasca? Where did you go to take it? Um, did, did you get down to South America? I mean, what, what was happening for you? Yeah. Um, so I was raised by uh, transcendental meditating parents in Berkeley, California. So to say that um, the psychedelic mysteries of the universe were taboo in my house would be a misstatement. It was not that I was allowed to do drugs or anything like that so much as my parents said, look, when you're 18 and you're old enough, if you want to experiment with things, try grass, as they call pot, and, um, you know, things like that. They were very, like, don't be an idiot, don't be reckless, be safe, but also we're not close-minded and negative about these things. So it was very interesting. So I first heard of DMT when I was like in my early 20s. I'm 42 now for context, yeah. so about 20 years ago. And I tried it pretty quickly after that, and I didn't actually love it or really care that much for the experience. But um, about five years after that, I started hearing constantly about like this ayahuasca thing in South America, like you said. And I don't really remember who first hipped me to it but i know that uh within five seconds of hearing about it i was like okay that's going to be on my list of things to try because uh first of all anything that's thousands of years old i don't fear it um secondly like you said there's a million articles on the internet so i'm not going to like belabor the point but unless you have certain health issues there's really no risk you're not going to like overdose on it it's not you know reckless or dangerous what is dangerous is if you don't have like a babysitter they say so uh i was intrigued but I've just put it on the back burner for many years because I met someone, you know, we got married and I had a kid and I'm not the kind of person who's going to do drugs when my kids in my house. So after the divorce, my wife, uh, my ex-wife asked to go to Thailand for two weeks with my son. And I very reluctantly said, yes, it's a much longer story. And so I booked a trip to Ecuador to legally do ayahuasca, which is why I can talk as freely about it as I want to. Um, yes. And I strongly recommend that because I think if you're a paranoid person, 
it's not smart to like take an illegal drug in America in like your one bedroom apartment in Brooklyn or wherever you're living. You know, it's, I think uh, <laughs> I, I would strongly recommend. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because there are tons of illegal havens to do it in every country. And I'm not saying you can't do that. I'm just saying that I think for like, um, you know, I think it was Alan Watts and uh, uh, Timothy Leary would always talk about set and setting. If you're going to do psychedelics, um, yeah. it's very important. So so I was very happy to go to Ecuador and go to a retreat where people like they were serving like healthy food. It was like, there's an ayahuasca diet that they recommend. And so I went there and while I, I took it three times in five days and I found, uh, for whatever reason, I am a lightweight with most substances. I am not a lightweight with ayahuasca. I was able to take three <laughs> times as much as most people. I Ooh. never, ever vomited. I didn't have any of those, but I had the full experience. It's not that I didn't get the results. It's that I, I followed the diet to a T and I was very like reverent of the instructions because I value uh, indigenous knowledge for lack of a better term. Mm -hmm. Like I value this idea that like, just because Western science has all its knowledge and stuff there, you know, we should put this other stuff on the back burner. So I did it three times in five days. And the uh, final time I did it was one of the most um, life-changing experiences of my life. So just for context for everyone listening, because I've been telling the story out of order, uh, June 6th, 2017, I officially finalized my divorce with my at-the-time wife. Uh, October 17th, she flew to Thailand with my son. And October 21st through the 27th, I did ayahuasca three times in five days. Um, so on October 27th, four days before my son was supposed to return to America where I would pick him up from the airport and his mother. And then I would have him for Halloween. Um, I took ayahuasca and I got this, like the only way for me to explain is I got a message. That's how I tell people. I just like with absolute certainty, something in me told me it wasn't a voice. I didn't hear God. I didn't see anything. It was just a confident intuitive knowledge is the best way I can explain it. Mm -hmm. And it said, long ago your son and you agreed to a contract and the contract is that he wants to have the experience of growing up without a dad um you you agreed to this and you were handpicked and you're the perfect candidate for it so just be nice and be kind about it um but just so you know there's nothing you can do to undo this like nothing you do will prevent this from happening or make it not happen nor can you hasten the process um so i came home on october 29th and i had dinner with my dad um and i said hey dad i took ayahuasca in ecuador and i had this amazing experience he's like great tell me all about it and then i told him that message and i said so i think i'm gonna call i'm not gonna use her name uh my son's mother mm -hmm. and uh tell her that i'm gonna voluntarily let him grow up in thailand which was like a big issue in the divorce is i was like no he's gonna grow up in america and i said as long as she gives me vacations with him uh in winter and summer i'm gonna do it and i explained why and he said you know that's not a bad idea for a lot of reasons. And even without the ayahuasca experience, I can see why that kind side of you would want to do that. But since school doesn't start till they're five and your son's only two, why don't you wait three years and then do it? Um, and I said, yeah, that's not a bad idea. Well, I didn't have an opportunity to offer it or <laughs> even entertain that because two days later, uh, I got an email with a very flimsy excuse. And, you know, next thing I know, I'm on the phone with the state department in the United States and, uh, you know, filing, uh, an abduction claim with the international court system. It was crazy. It was just like this oh. whirlwind thing. Uh, yeah. And then, uh, so I fought it. I didn't keep my end of the deal. And I, I tried to like legally get my son back. And then this is the funny part. So I could give him back to her legally. Like I wanted it just to be yeah, you fair to be and right. square. Yeah. 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 
And so I didn't get that opportunity. But the reason I go into such detail about it with you on this podcast is that it changed me because I saw whether the message is BS or not, I saw what happened when I went against it. And my mm. intuition was telling me don't go against it. So since that day, it's taken a lot of work. But after about two years from the abduction, I was pretty centered and able to move on and, you know, be healthy. And now it's been six years. And I would say I'm not like over it in a pat way, but I'm over it. Like, you know, mm -hmm. no, I completely understand. That's it would have been very challenging at the time. I mean, did you go through a grieving process um, of disconnection? Oh with God, this yeah. yeah, yeah. I yeah. Understand. I mean, I still miss him like so much. This is the part that's hard. It's hard to not to talk about it. But um, yeah, he was my son. I was with him every day until he was two. I wanted him. I was begging my at the time wife to have a kid like I'm the kind of dad you know there's a lot of us out there I'm not saying I'm special but yeah. you know I really wanted a kid and I really wanted to be a hands-on parent I've always wanted children since I was a kid so I now have I'm remarried to the love of my life and I have a daughter who's two and I have another daughter coming in February so oh, uh yeah and my son um he he knows me and he knows like who I am and he used to call pretty often on Skype with his parent like his mom and his grandfather's help and then uh now he's eight so it's like in a weird wobbly territory but he did call me on his birthday this year which was like very touching so i do know my son he definitely calls me dad and knows who i am we do not have a strong or good relationship from my perspective mm -hmm. but um it's not like he's dead to me so i grieve something i'll never get back i grieve like this time you know if i don't know if you have children uh um, yeah i do i'm gonna do but it. So you know that like cuddly phase, like that the yeah. the best phase, as a lot of parents would say. And I just I didn't get it with him. You know, I got like mm. zero to two. He was just starting to talk and be really active, and then boom. So yeah, 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 yeah. That'd be hard. It, it, the 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 story of you actually um, uh, chasing it up through the State Department and attempting to um, make that sort of change in the way that you wanted to make it. I think um, in in future time, he'll come across all of that information and um, realize that you know uh, he does he is wanted by you and is connected to you in that way. And it's important. I mean, I I actually um, was adopted at a, at twenty eight days myself. And oh, wow. um, and I felt a disconnection with my parents because um, they weren't my parents; they weren't my blood parents. And, and you know that on some sort of level. And um, later on in life, I, I I sought out my original birth documents and all of that around that. And and I did find actually that my mother had gone back to the state and said, "I want him back." After a period of um, I think it was just over a month after I was born, and at that stage, you know, the documents were signed, and the, and the state just said no. So, but that actually made me go, "Wow!" So my mother did want me back, and, and that was important I had to know goosebumps, that. Like that's yeah. so powerful. Yeah, thank so, you so, for sharing that with me. That like it's well, it's important to know that, but that you know, each little piece of information adds up to a a whole experience of life, and I'm and I'm certain that um what you did will will play out in a beautiful way in the future yeah thank you yeah so um i've got to ask you though when what drew you to ayahuasca at the time i mean did you did you actually just think what well, this is going to be a solution i mean um why why did you go there oh yeah yeah so um i think it, to for me the stated intention was to figure out what had gone wrong how had i Again, my version of a story, I'm sure my ex has her version. Um, at the time of the divorce, I was like 80% her fault, 20% mine. You know, I was like very like <laughs> this, this person yeah, like I think we called me names and berated me for years and like made my life horrible and like complained and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Then, you know, as I get 
further from it. But at the time in 2017, like fresh out of the divorce, I think I just wanted clarity for my future. Like what, what is going on? Like, I'm not where I want to be with my career. I have a failed marriage. I'm a divorcee with a, a custody situation with a son, you know, it was like, like no one as a kid thinks I'm going to be a divorced person with a, you know what I mean? It's like not a romantic or nice thing. So I, I think the stated intention of ayahuasca for me was I just wanted the universe to help me stay afloat. So is your way of actually putting a telescope to the stars and, and uh, getting some guidance in a different sort of way? Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Absolutely. That's a great phrase. Excellent. Yeah. And you, and you found your way through that. That's, that's really, really good to hear. So you actually do other work as well. Um, um, besides explore ayahuasca, which is something you did in the past <laughs> there. <laughs> so can you tell me about your understanding of the intersection of humor and philosophy? Cause I mean, you, you are, um, uh, a top-selling humor and philosophy writer on Substack. How did that come about? I mean, what what spurned you to become such a writer? Um, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I as a child, I was really interested in music, but I, what I was really interested in was writing music. And so, like, my life was dedicated to music until I was twenty something, and then I and I also made films. And I, I but I realized, like, after performing and doing all these things, that my favorite thing is to create. I like to be behind the scenes. And so it, it naturally led to writing, which is like, you know, the foundation of like, you go to the movies and no one ever knows who wrote their favorite movie. And, and I like, was like, that's how I like figured my future would be is I'd be this not famous person with like a really healthy ego because I had written like things that people consume in culture. So I'm still in that driver's seat, but uh, mm. the nonfiction thing took me by surprise. I just one day, uh, started reading when I was in college. So I went to college, like when the internet was like just starting to pop 1999. And so like, you know, we had like an official email address at the university and like a landline in the room to our like big tower computers, you know, it was like that era. And so I, this guy at um, like an Ivy league school was sending out emails on what's called like a distribution list. And I'm sure you know what this is, but I'm saying it for younger people listening. And, uh, and so this is like, think like a blog, but like earlier stage in that. And I was like, really enamored by his style, which was to be very funny and talk about his personal feelings of dating and going through college. And so after I graduated and after I quit playing music, I had this like weird epiphany and I wanted to write my own version of that. So I just did one as a one-off as an email and everyone who read it didn't say it sucked. Like, I, I can't say that it was like, everyone's like, wow, you're great. Do more. It was more that like, no one said that was stupid. And that was enough for me. I was like, I'm going to do more. And then the list kept growing and people would like ask to be on it. And uh, then it turned into like an essay every week. And the humor thing is just always my take. I'm not like, I'm not a funny person. I'm not a stand-up comedian, but I see humor in everything. Like my own child's abduction. I can make jokes. I've really weirded people out by making abduction jokes. Like it doesn't matter to me because <laughs> who cares? Like, and ultimately I think when you die, you're not important. Like you're important to the people you touch and you know, all that, but like we take ourselves too seriously and it helps me not to become too serious to be kind of funny. So humor and philosophy to me really intersect. And I think yeah. Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, all my favorite thinkers from that era, they had a sense of humor, you know, like they're, it's not uncommon in my opinion. 
Mm-hmm. I, I think that um, humor is a good way to actually teach um, without teaching sort of thing. It's a, it's a, it's a, yeah. it's a pathway into people's understanding of different angles on experiences of life. So, um, yeah, I get what you're getting at with that. Now, you also run a um, podcast yourself, which is called Coffin Talk, um, and you've got that's about the um, meaning of death. What drew you to actually doing that? I mean, you must have had some experiences to want to start talking to people about that. <laughs> yeah, so there's a... I'm going to tell like a mid-length version of the story because I don't want to over-talk. Um, when I was a little child, my mom had a friend who was dying of cancer and I, for some reason, wanted to tag along and be around her. And my mom would tell her friends and me that I was like really good at consoling people as they were dying. And then it happened again. A different friend's mom got cancer and I did the same thing. And then there was a third incident when I was in my teens. And so by the time I was like 20, I just had in the back of my mind this thing of like, oh, you're good at counseling people on their way out of earth. And so after my son's abduction, I love volunteering and I had all this free time. I, I didn't have a half week custody of my kid. I had no, you know, nothing. I, I still had to pay child support, ironically, um, even though it doesn't go to her because she doesn't collect it, but that's a whole nother story. So I was like, mm. what am I going to do with all this free time? So I decided to volunteer at a hospice ward. Um, and, uh, so I started and I did it for three straight years and I did it a lot. I did like three to five sessions a week. Um, and I just, I didn't get addicted to it, but I was good at it. Not in a like patting myself on the back way. I just was like good at it. I was good at comforting people. And, uh, but the one thing I noticed was some people are inconsolable when they're dying and they're not comfortable. And the reason they're not is because they never really thought about dying. They just pushed that subject away. They just never dealt with it. Um, and so I started to notice that this is in my country, America, like a total trend that people like that, that no one on TV dies. You never have like episodes of a sitcom where they go to a funeral. There's never like death and like, oh, we have a weird law. Uh, weird. That's a nice euphemism. We have a bad law, which is you can't show bodies of soldiers who died. Like we are this country that goes to war constantly, but never shows you the horrible, nasty side of war. Mm. Um, we'll show missiles. We'll show like action shots. Like right now, you can turn on CNN and see like everything going on in Israel and, you know, Palestine and everything, but you won't see bodies of the dead. You won't see like, you know, even like coffins. So, um, so my wife and I during COVID just decided like, we're bored. We have time. Let's do a podcast. And she said, you know, you should just interview people about dying. Like that's a thing you have a somewhat unique, uh, niche in. And so I started it and it, uh, it's so weird. I, um, I like love it to an extent that I'm like uncomfortable with almost because it's just fun. You know, this I'm sure interviewing people's really fun. It is. Uh, <laughs> and, it, and it's a great, it's the least egotistical thing I've ever done that appears to be egotistical. I, I don't know if you can relate to this, but like mm. you're, you're actually bringing out the best in other people and you're shining yes. a light on them and you're just, and I was a teacher and it reminds me so much of teaching. So I love it. It gives me this thing I missed so much after I retired from teaching. And uh, yeah, so the Coffin Talk podcast, and by the way, you're 100% a candidate to come on if you're willing. So I love that. Yeah, have for you. sure. Um, That'd be cool. Yeah. Okay. So I'll, I'll you know, we'll talk off. We'll work it out. But, um, yeah, yeah. But, but um, and, and I always say that if I like someone on an interview, because I don't want to ask you questions about death now, like I'm going to purposely hold them. Uh, okay. It's yeah. I would ask sure. you, yeah, like your audience hopefully will listen to you when you're on it um, because it'll be a different side of you. Like I'll start, uh, I never plan the questions except one question. One question is static every single episode, which is what do you think happens when you die? 
And it's not, what do you think happens to Bill or James or, you know, someone else? It's what do you think happens to you when you die? And, uh, mm -hmm. and then we kind of, sometimes I ask it towards the end. Sometimes it's like the second question I ask, it just depends on the flow of the interview. And then I try to trace the person's morality with that in mind. Like, uh, so example, if I'm interviewing like a staunch Catholic who believes in hell, I'll be like, so you really believe you're going to hell? And they're like, oh, yeah. Like, oh, I mean, they don't think they're going to. But you believe that there is a place called hell that you could go to in a place called heaven. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then we kind of like dissect it. And it's interesting. It's interesting to see how like people from all over the world. I've had guests from different countries, you know, not just Americans. Um, yeah. yeah. Excellent. Okay. So, Mike, what happens when you die? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think... I've been influenced, to be honest. Like other people, have been, I'm way less into reincarnation than I used to be. I've heard so many people talk about reincarnation that I've started to see the limitless holes in that logic. But I don't see a hole in the logic of reincarnation is real. It's just not you. So like that's where the misconception. Like if I was Cleopatra, the most famous cliche example of like past life talk, um, it wouldn't matter. I wasn't Cleopatra. It would just be that like there's a like a spoke on a wheel is, is who you are. You're the spoke and these other incarnations can come like not out of you the same way the spoke connects the wheel. You don't know if you're the spoke or the wheel, but the, the, what is the word for that? The rods? I don't know. The, the threads. Um, yeah. Yeah. Whatever that is. That's like, uh, those are the lives. And so like, yes, I do believe that when you die, there is a conscious experience beyond what we have here. So I do believe that there's a transition of consciousness. Mm -hmm. I don't believe there's a permanent mic who's going to sit somewhere and observe and talk and communicate. But I do believe since, as Einstein said, time is, is relative. I do believe it's relative that like right now I'm here on earth in a fake year called 2023 on a fake day talking to you, but really we're in a, timeless floating space and that's just a variable and so i see i see an unexplainable unword of wordable experience but i i intuit it like it, it's somewhere like when you're doing drugs and you get a little disassociated you know like the first time i smoked marijuana i remember kind of like a little bit like floating outside of my body a little bit like and so i think that's what happens i think you tether and those near-death experience books that you can read and when i interview people that's really telling because there's really not a second version of that all near-death experiences are so similar they're mm -hmm. like all so similar and it, it would be strange for that many people to be making it up and lying and being like you know that coordinated so yeah i've, I've read some nda books and um looked a lot of uh, at a lot of uh, nda videos on youtube and yeah as you i know you're right there that a lot of the experiences are so similar that uh it's obvious that there is something else going on and uh, I won't go into my beliefs because we'll hold, we'll hold that for the show. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all due respect. Oh, and can, yeah. I, can I throw something else in that I forgot about until just yeah, now? Yeah, yeah, sure. DM so ayahuasca is a plant medicine and it's made by adding like a really weird like vine from a jungle primarily in South America yeah. to something else and you mix them. And then what it does though is it creates DMT but for a prolonged state. So if you smoke DMT, which is like the traditional thing, it like lasts like 10, 20 minutes max. And then you can't smoke it again quickly. There's no like re-upping like cocaine or other. That's why there's no potential for addiction with it. 
Um, although I know people have done it way too much and got addicted to the experience. So I'm just going to throw that out there. But uh, the most interesting thing from all of this to me is DMT is a naturally occurring thing in your own brain. And they've proven that it is released at birth and at death. And so if nothing else, that would explain why people have the same experience. If nothing else, there's, they're all getting a DMT rush, but then they're coming back, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, look, um, the DMT actually is also produced in the spinal column and also in the lungs if you do breath work. So you can actually oh, yeah, access yeah. these states as well through through yeah. specific breath work techniques. And uh, yeah, pranayama seems to be one of the ways to get in there. Um, and uh, Wim Hof's techniques seem to actually push that through into our systems as well. So um, there are ways to access it without taking things and um you know obviously yeah, yeah. it's released from the pineal gland and if you clean that up you clean up your pineal gland you can actually have um, even you know bigger experiences with it without um having to, to uh, ingest something so yeah there's 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 definitely ways and means to um experience that and enjoy that so yeah cool okay so um you actually also have um have two master's degrees what, what, what uh, master's yeah. degrees are those what do you do what did you do uh, so i have a <laughs> I have a master of fine arts in creative writing and education. So I have a, um, it's a unique in America and the world, I guess it's a terminal degree, which means I'm allowed to teach at a university, um, without going to a PhD program for seven years. So it's, um, so that's my first master's degree. And then I also, after that very quickly got an ESL master's degree teaching English as a second language. Mm. And so I became, uh, I was a creative writing and an English teacher and I had like three teaching jobs at once my first year out of school. And then uh, one of the companies I worked for a private school for ESL, like begged me to be full time. And I Mm -hmm. ended up working with for them for nine years. And it was just one of the best experiences of my life. I got to travel without traveling. Um, We had international students come to our school, they would come for a week to six weeks and then leave. I met thousands of people from almost every country except Africa. We only have like three students from Africa ever come. That's just like a not, their culture doesn't really send people to America to learn language. They have people, but it's not common. Right, right. Now as a part of your career too, you actually uh, were in some rock bands as well and uh, explored that sort of life path. What rock bands and where did you go? What happened? Uh, Yeah, so (laughs) when I was a kid, uh, I was like obsessed with singing and music and then, I was 10 the first time I heard uh, the song Smells Like Teen Spirit. It broke like when I was 10 years old and I was just hooked. I was like, mom, I want a guitar. And she's like, no, you quit things. And I'm like, mom, I want a guitar. I was like, Bart Simpson, (laughs) like just begging. (laughs) And so my parents brokered a cool deal with me. They said, all right, we'll rent a guitar. And if you practice every day for three months, we'll buy you one for your birthday. So like three months before my birthday. So I, I mean, it even surprised me. I was a quitter. I quit things like I quit sports. I quit everything I did when I was a kid. I got this guitar. I remember my fingers bleeding the first night. I played Jingle Bells in the garage for like four hours and I never could put it down. I played guitar hours a day, every day until I was like mid twenties. I mean, uh, yeah. So I wanted to be in a band from the time I was 11 on. I had, you know, failed attempts in high school. And then in the end of college, I convinced two friends from the West coast who were graduating to join me and start a band on the East coast. Cause that's where I was studying. And then one of the guy's girlfriend lived like further than me east, like almost by New York City. And she convinced him to convince me to move the whole band to where she was. And then she would play bass. So I met her and she was fantastic at bass. So we started this band and it was called Punch Clock. And we lasted two and a half, three years. Um, But we, we, 
it's, it's interesting. I, we, we made it to a level faster than most bands get, but then we were so like bickering and fighting that we broke up. And then I moved to uh, Oregon and a friend of mine uh, started a cover band of surf rock. And he just asked me if I would play lead guitar in it. And I, it was so fun. So I was in a surf rock band for a couple of years. And then Excellent. I quit. I retired. I still play music, but yeah, that was it. Yeah, right. So yeah, you still play music for yourself now. And uh, do, do you yeah. compose your own songs still? Um, actually, it's funny. I <laughs> No and yes. I, uh, I make silly songs for my daughter. So I do compose songs technically, <laughs> but they're like very derivative, like three chord rock songs with just funny lyrics and stuff. I'm not like really trying... Um, you know, it's weird. I was thinking about this a lot the other day. Even if I were to like pursue music again, the market doesn't like what I do anymore. Like I never hear rock songs anymore. I don't hear like that kind of, you know, my band, the real sound I was doing, like we were, it was a weird combination, but we sounded kind of like Pavement and Weezer and a couple other bands from like the late nineties. And so like, you know, Weezer still like massively successful. So it's not like there isn't a market for it, but uh, I am no rivers flow and you know yeah so to add some perspectives of that though i mean that's that's a great skill be able to um entertain your daughter with music um and writing songs for her if you look at the um the most successful australian band of i think it's of all time actually it was actually a band called the cockroaches that turned into the wiggles so oh they, my gosh, that's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, they say they started out as a regular rock band called the Cockroaches, and they they toured up and down the coast. But they they saw the the, the glass ceiling that actually was in rock band touring, and then they just sidestepped and pivoted, turned into the Wiggles, and became one of the most successful rock bands in Australian history worldwide. That's crazy. <laughs> I thought you were going to talk about uh, in excess. So <laughs> that's funny. Ah, no, they're bigger than in excess. They probably made more money and went yeah. you know, many, no, many for sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a cool uh, trivia. That's a good trivia question. I don't think anyone would get that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I'm from Australia, so I know that. So. Yeah, no, no, that's cool though. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, okay. So, um, you are writing still a lot and you've actually just produced your um, first book here, I think. Is it your first book? No, no, I have, uh, I've written seven novels and my fifth novel oh, wow. was picked up Sorry. by a publishing house recently. No, no, that's okay. Yeah, I okay. don't care at all. <laughs> so you've just got your um, new book out, which is Ardor. Yeah. Can you tell yeah, us about Ardor. that? Yeah, Ardor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's actually, it's dedicated to my son and it's about uh, a kid who's the world's most famous psychic uh, to be. He's not famous yet and he doesn't want to be. So he's trying to not fulfill his uh, destiny. And it's about like his immature reaction to like what he's supposed to do his his uh his dharma if you will and um it's definitely loosely based on a fictional version of the abduction of my son and all that and it has like a very like interesting plot it's funny it's serious and it ends uh unlike most of my novels it has like in my opinion a very like um philosophical ending which i like and so i'm not surprised that it was picked up by a publishing house after trying with other projects because um it really like, I just got better over the years, you know, like when I got my MFA, I was good. And then I got better. And so I love my third novel actually the most. And I re-edited it um, mm. because now I'm much better at writing, but my fifth one, Ardor is currently out. And, you know, I definitely like try to market it, you know, as best I can. I'm not really good at like talking up my stuff, but I can tell you that it's uh, all my projects are fun and easy to read. I never write like hard to read things like even my essays like last week was uh vaginas can't aim and it's about how uh, my toddler <laughs> is learning to pee and i kept telling her to aim and my wife came in and was like you moron 
women can't <laughs> aim. And I'm like, what do you mean you can't aim? And like, and so that, you know, that's the kind of stuff I do. <laughs> so that's excellent. Yeah. 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 Well, if you were actually to, to write a, your own Amazon review of your own book and you were somebody else, what would you say? That's a great question. You're a great interviewer. I've never <laughs> thought about that. Um, I would say, uh, Mike takes a humorous and not heavy handed approach to uh, an obscure subject like psychics and makes it relatable and fun. And uh, I was surprised by the emotional engagement with the characters, especially towards the end of the novel. Wow. That's a perfect summary. Excellent. That makes people, it makes it really easy for people to engage with it like straight away. So yeah, that was cool. Send that back to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, when I when I actually do the recording and I finish it, um, it actually does do a transcription, so um, I can oh, cool. link you, and then you can go and copy that bit out. So <laughs> awesome! Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. So, um, what was it like for you living um, in a foreign country? I guess that was Thailand. You were living for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Where were you? Yeah, where was... were you living in Thailand? Um, so I lived. So at the time I was married, my. Um, uh, wife at the time's parents had a, a very nice house in Bangkok, and then they also had a second house in um, Hua Hin, which is where the king lives, and it's down on the the Gulf. And so I would, tra- uh, so we would live in their home base in Bangkok, but then we travel off into Hua Hin, and we'd also go to a couple other places. And uh, the only thing that made it unique that I think is like interesting for other people, because you can everyone goes to Thailand. I mean, it's so popular, but I got to see Thailand with like family from Thailand and they speak Thai fluently and everywhere we went, like people would not treat me like a, um, a, a gaijin, a stranger, a, you know, yes. like a, um, they have a different word for it, um, but I'm drawing a blank on it. It's their word for papaya. Um, I can't remember now. <laughs> anyway, it means white fruit. That's what they call white people. <laughs> but um, yeah. anyway, uh, so it was really interesting because I got to like see a different side of Thailand and experience it. And then also like my, the family I was staying with would like translate things for me and kind of, you know, but I also got to see like their, um, the Thai population is 17% of Chinese ethnic descent and then 83% original Siam culture for lack of a better word. And so the family I was with is of the Chinese descent and they're the wealthy class in Thailand. So they're like in the U S we have this fake number. We say the 1%, but they're like the 1% basically. And so it was interesting because uh, I come from a place in America where I met a lot of the 1%. Like I'm from the Bay Area of California and I'm not exactly a fan of like wealthy culture. And so it was like weird to be like with a family that was obsessed with like announcing their wealth and being wealthy. Like everywhere they went, they'd be like the finest bottle of wine. And like they were like flaunting it because in in their minds, in that culture, that's like appropriate. And I can't speak to whether it is or isn't, but it was very like, strange to me and then you know uh, yeah um so as far as the experience though it helped me see america in a way i'll never be able to unsee which is very helpful for me it's very therapeutic um Mm -hmm. i was very anti-america when 9-11 happened it it, uh i was a student i was i felt guilty for years about our policies and especially the cia and uh so when that attack happened unlike most of my peers i didn't think we got attacked i thought man that was like like that would be like if you taunted a kid at school for 15 years and they punch you in the face, like, you know, Mm. what did you expect? So I wasn't like sympathetic to people who did it. I never would be. Violence is absolutely inexcusable, but I felt really guilty. And so it helped me to live in Thailand to not feel guilty because I saw that like every culture 
thinks they're awesome. And every culture, like, you know, we beat the drum louder than any other and we're so obnoxious. I mean, don't get me started, but you know, the average Australian is proud to be Australian. The average like Jamaican is proud to be from Jamaica. So there's nothing wrong with liking America. It helps me like reset something important. I'm way less judgmental. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Excellent. Now I, I, I think that, um, that flamboyance, um, that comes with, um, being wealthy in, um, Thai culture is, um, related also to a magical act, which is, um, you know, when you're showing off your abilities of, of magic and wealth, um, you know, the magic of being wealthy, then it actually encourages it and also enhances it as well. So that actually leads me to a question. Did you actually experience the, um, the, the magic and, and sorcery spiritual side of Thailand while you were there? No, not at all. Unfortunately, it was, uh, at, I mean, to say I butted heads with my ex-in-laws would be, um, like we never fought openly, oh, but every yeah. time I suggested an activity or something that was like off the beaten path, they would like make fun of it and just say like, that's for poor idiots. That's not what we do. So oh. no. And I, I can't, uh, I, I speak Thai. I learned it after my son's abduction. I was yes. like obsessed with learning it because I want to be able to speak to him. He speaks English, so it doesn't matter. But, uh, <laughs> uh <laughs> so I can't wait to go back to Thailand someday and like actually do it. Cause, uh, Yeah. Right, right. So actually, it was a bit of a challenge to live there at that time with uh, her parents because of that uh, exclusionary sort of tactic on yeah. their part. Wow. Okay. Well, they were, I don't think this is a stretch to say, uh, they're the kinds of people who abduct a son of mine. So they're also the kinds of people who just like, that was like their attitude while I was there. It was just like, we call the shots, you're married to our daughter. That was yes. part of why I felt uncomfortable as the marriage progressed because I was like, oh, you you treat your daughter like an infant and by association you want to treat me like that and they wanted to buy us a house they want us to live down the street from them he wanted me to get a job at a school he was going to buy he wanted me to be like the vice principal of it he wanted me to earn a lot of money like he was very generous and kind in a certain way but he was also like so controlling, controlling. and my dad my dad's like the most hands-off awesome like do whatever you want be a rock star if you want dad so it was very mm. hard for me psychologically yeah, right. Did that actually uh, create friction because you felt like you were obliged? Yeah, and it was weird because it was it was um, the first couple years of the marriage. My wife at the time was constantly saying, like, my parents are right, you need blah, blah, blah. And then we, like, spent enough time with them that she, like, on the very last trip we ever took there, she said, I don't want to live with them. I don't want to move to Thailand anymore. I, like, changed my mind blah, blah, blah. But then we just kept fighting and arguing about other stupid stuff. So, you know, intercultural relationships are so hard. I was warned by three close friends. They didn't say don't marry her, but they said like, you need to really realize that like volatile issues will come up that you never saw coming. And, and they're exactly right. And especially when you go outside of like, like it's one thing to have a Spanish person marry a German or even an American and a Spanish, you know, but like when you step outside of that Western culture into Eastern culture, it's even more like, precipitous and actually i think australia is the best western country by far at understanding this because of where you're located and, and that you know so mm, yeah we are a bit of a like you, mm. i mean you guys are the best travelers ever everyone loves you <laughs> like I, you know, i've traveled <laughs> a lot and i was tempted after 9 11 i wanted to put like a canadian or australian sticker you know just feign your accent so i would get <laughs> excellent okay so have you found um over time that um you know the connection point between you and your ex um is your son but have you found other uh points of connection so you can actually re rebuild a friendship outside of that as well 
uh, no, she won't even respond. Um, when she first took him, she would respond to all my emails and stuff. And she would especially send my mom photos and stuff. And she was very amicable. And then at some point, very abruptly, she just stopped responding to anything. She won't talk to me. She, That's she's tough. in the background on the calls, but she like the last time I said something to talk to her, she hung up. And like, so I just, I, I've been trained. Like I've been like sociopathically trained to play by the rules, which is stay in my lane. Don't ask questions that could in any way insinuate that something went wrong, you know, and I, I would never do that. But like the risk of her hanging up or them not ever calling me again is so prominent in my mind that I just say like, I love you, son. Abby. So no, we have no relationship. I've written her numerous apologies. Some of them were fake and then they eventually became real. I've tried so hard to relate like, you know, things, um, also, I've learned a lot of lessons about um, about grieving and about vengeance and about holding grudges. And I heard this yesterday, so I'm going to repeat it as if like it's my own thought, but it's not. But I heard it and it really clicked. For someone to do something really awful to someone else, the only way to keep doing it is to somehow turn it into it was their fault and you're the victim. And I truly think that's what, at the end of the day, is going on in her mind is that like I called the state department and i was very like angry and i was trying to take my son from her like you know i think the narrative starts with my response to the abduction because what happened when they took him is they lied and said that her back hurt and he was going to come later and then i got an email from her father through her to my parents it wasn't even to me which is again another like thai thing so it was very like to me it was very insulting but i can see it differently now six years later and it just said our daughter can't live in America alone. You know this, we know it. Like, this is just a, a bad situation. It's unfortunate for everyone. So we're just going to make it easy. We'll take care of Tyler, my son. I don't mind saying his name. Uh, uh, over here, and uh, you don't have to do anything. <laughs> and I was just like, no, what are you talking about? So. Mm, mm, yeah, that would have been tough at the time. But I would, uh, to, I would love to have a friendship or even just approachable you know, relationship with her. I think it's unhealthy for a child to see that what she's done. I, this would be my only real criticism is like, I just don't see an end game for healthy psychological child development when, you know, things are this tilted, but. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think in time that, um, you know, um, as his mind forms and understanding forms of the world, he'll, he'll be able to see things. Cause I mean, I, I do know, um, from my experience with my own daughter, um, you know, the, they they actually see everything as well and as they get yeah. maturity it sorts out in their heads and uh eventually um you know he'll come to you with understanding so yeah i wouldn't be afraid of that and um i'm, I'm sure that it will happen and uh maybe in time you can have a friendship with your ex as well which is amicable at least so yeah I'm, i wish that for you so um yeah. What I was going to ask you then, Mike, you know, considering all of your experiences and um, everything you've been through, is there any life advice that you'd like to lay out to the listeners that, um, you know, maybe are any questions that I didn't ask that I could, could have asked um, <laughs> that you'd like to have asked? I, I would just say two words, be kind. I would just say the solution to everything is be nice. No matter what happens to you, where you are, who's doing it, if you're nice, there's a million times better likelihood of things turning out okay for you. Um, I'm not saying that if someone is like holding a gun to you, you should be nice to them, but it certainly wouldn't help you to be mean to them. Like, you know, so exactly. just, yeah. So I would just say in any situation I'm in now, I just try to think, how can I be nice about this? Like mm -hmm. if I'm, you know, like earlier I was trying to meditate in the house and I heard 
my uh, wife like singing a song loudly to my daughter. And my first thought was, why won't they shut up? And my second thought was, gosh, I have the best wife ever. She loves my daughter and she's singing to her, you know, like there's always yeah. a kind view of things. And so that worked, you know, and it's not, it didn't work because it's a trick. It worked because that's actually the truth. Yes. The lie is I deserve peace and meditation time. Who cares? Like, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Of course. So, yeah. so that, that would be my sides. only advice from all this. Yeah. And that's why I'm, I'm going to be kind to my ex-in-laws for the rest of their lives. And, yeah. you know, um, I hope it pays off. But even if it doesn't, I don't have anger anymore. And that's the best lesson for me is just anger is your only enemy. It's, yeah. 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 Look, I was robbed at gunpoint in the Philippines, and um, they oh, wow. actually had a had a, a forty five pointing at my face, and uh, it was during a, a money exchange situation that went the wrong way, and I was just trying to change money to get a good rate, and they, you know, pushed me into an alleyway and did the exchange in front of me, and I'm thinking this is not good. I'm surrounded oh. by gangsters, and and they were counting out counting out the money, and um, I could see it was you know fake. They were faking it. And I looked at it and I said, this, and they said, is that right? And I looked at them and I said, no, this is not right. And they put the gun to my face and said, yeah, this is right. And I thought at that moment, this is a time to be extremely agreeable. <laughs> so I said, yeah, that's okay. great. That's fine. Thank you. And I just backed out and walked away. Um, but yeah, you know, like you said, you're, you know, your your example of a gun to the face, be nice. Yeah, that, that that's a really good idea. <laughs> Can I ask you a couple of follow-up questions? I'm obsessed with these kind of events. Um, yeah, sure. What uh. I, I imagine this has not happened to me, but I imagine I would be so angry at like the unfair coercion and belittlement of like someone using a weapon to have that much power over you. Did it, did it react? Did you react like that at some point after? Or? I was upset. Um, I actually didn't, I, I felt like my life was threatened at that moment in that time. Um, but I did step back from the situation, um, with an understanding that um, I did the best thing I possibly could, obviously, because I was alive still. Uh, and I, at that moment, because I actually did uh, catch a, a cab into um, the area where the money changers were, and the cab was still waiting for me. So I went and jumped back in the cab and he said to me, because he said, he said, you look upset, what happened? And I said, oh, I was just robbed by some people at gunpoint. And he was like, what? And um, he reached under his um, seat and pulled out a sawn-off shotgun and went running down the alley looking for them. And I was like, what is going on? This place wow. is mental. Um, <laughs> so I was actually feeling like justified in some way there, even though it was, for me, it was a great loss at the time. It was also like, okay, people are coming to my defense as well. And that was cool. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's um, beautiful. But he came back, he said, look, I can't find anyone. And I said, yeah, I didn't expect you to, but um, thank you for that. And he said, look, you need to report this and told me where to report it and everything. And uh, I was only 19 at the time, so um, it was quite shocking. But um, yeah, uh, yeah, it was it was uh, a big change point in my life for sure. Yeah, don't yeah. trust don't trust random money changes on the street with great rates when you're in the Philippines. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have uh, some angel on my shoulder because I should have had a couple really bad experiences traveling, and I've just been very lucky. Actually, my scariest one was in. New Orleans, Louisiana, where oh, I was yeah? drunk with a friend and I really wanted to get high on pot. You know, I was just oh. so drunk at the end of the night. And so I agreed yeah. to go back to this person's apartment to like smoke weed with them. And it just, I still to this day don't know how it didn't turn into like a double homicide. But, um, oh, good. We what actually happened? ended you up. Do you mind talking about what happened? 
Well, it's weird. Uh, nothing happened, but it was like everything looked like it was going to go really dark and bad. There was like a weird guy in, uh, asleep in a different bedroom. And then they asked us to like go in the bathroom. And then for some reason, like we had to like stay in a different room and I heard the door lock. It was just like everything, you know, and I was drunk. So I thought everything was hilarious. And then at some weird point, I was just like, this isn't okay. This isn't going well. And my friend is even more drunk than me. And so I somehow... I'll, I don't remember what we did, but I BS my way out of it. I just said like, oh, my friend's downstairs. He's calling me. I have to go down and like, but I'll come right back up or something. And I dragged him and then we just called a Lyft or an Uber or something. But I, I just remember like the next day, like I never drink that much. That was like New Orleans is a city where you just drink recklessly. And so I just like let go in a way I never would have. And mm -hmm. But uh, but yeah. It could be the spirits of the area. I mean, you know, the spirits like spirits, and <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. And they like but, you being uh, open to it too. So yeah, I think the drinking thing could be encouraged without you knowing it. So I understand that. Yeah, yeah. So Mike, I, thank you so much for your time. It's been appreciated. Um, you know, your stories and your experiences, and uh, yeah, you've 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 had some tough times there, but come all the way through. And uh, it's 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 beautiful that you shared that with us. Thank you so much. Yeah, of course. And thank you. And I, I just want to give you a huge compliment. Uh, I've done a lot of interviews. I do a lot of interviews. You're brilliant. And you have like oh, a cool. really intuitive and inquisitive mind. But you also you have a brilliant way of phrasing things. Like you said numerous things that I wish I could have written down and quoted. So um, thank you. I, I feel like this shared experience is really awesome for me. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. That's, that's really cool. I, I, I feel like I'm doing something good and I'm helping people. So that's that encourages me even more. <laughs> you are. Right. You have a great, you have a gentle heart and it comes through so it's cool beautiful, i appreciate beautiful. it our world needs a lot of people like you so thank uh, you. thanks mate. <laughs> thank you i appreciate that <laughs> all right so um i'll say bye for now and um yeah thank you for your time mike has been through quite quite a lot of experiences there and um the things that he shared i think will resonate for many people out there it's tough when you don't have access to your own child and can put you through quite an intense grieving process um, which is almost akin to them passing so i i know what he's going through and know what he's been through um, uh, because of the separation i had been through with my ex in the past and uh, the limiting of my access to her as well to my daughter i should say um, and uh, yeah, so his sharing, I think, will actually help with um, some people in their understanding and and their uh, experience of of those sort of uh, events. And uh, it was a pleasure to have Mike on the show, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Supernormalized. If you have a story that you'd like to share, please write me uh, directly at supernormalized at proton.me. And if you enjoyed the show, please share with two of your friends and that'll actually help people hear the show and expand my listener base so that more people can get super normalized themselves. All right. So thank you so much for your time for listening and until next week, bye for now.